Hey, Crawl Space listeners, we wanted to bring you an episode from our friends Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilly this weekend, and uh, it's a new show on the Crawl Space Network. It's called Mind Over Murder, and just a couple weeks ago, we had Bill on the Crawl Space Airwaves to talk about his new show and uh, the case that they're covering. And so we wanted to play episode one of Mind Over Murder here now, so you can listen to it, you can check it out, you can subscribe, and you can enjoy it. So thank you very much for listening to this, and please subscribe to Mind Over Murder. Thank you. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. More than 30 years ago in 1986, my younger sister, Kathy Thomas, a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, was murdered together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, a senior at William & Mary. Ten years ago, after the FBI lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos, I became much more involved in what many people refer to as the Colonial Parkway murders. I've now become the de facto leader eight families who lost loved ones in the Colonial Parkway murders. Four couples murdered approximately one couple a year over a three-year period. I'm now working on a book on the Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator, together with Kristen Dilley, of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, a victim's advocate, and I have a lifelong interest in true crime. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. Our podcast is designed to cover both solved and unsolved cases. We will be talking about the Colonial Parkway murders in the future, but we wanted to start off with some other unsolved cases in Virginia. This is part one of a two-part discussion of the 2009 murder of Heidi Childs and David Metzler at Caldwell Fields. Next week, we'll be joined by former Blacksburg police officer turned lawyer Lisa Lucas Gardner to discuss the Childs Metzler case and her years of advocacy. This is Mind Over Murder. Heidi Lynn Childs was 18 years old. David Lee Metzler was 19. They were high school sweethearts who'd been dating for four years. And they were murdered in the Caldwell Fields area outside of Virginia Tech in August of 2009. Today we're here to talk about their case. This is Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. And I'm Bill Thomas. You're listening to Mind Over Murder. Today we're going to go ahead and talk about the Heidi Lynn Childs and David Lee Metzler murders. Two high school sweethearts were found brutally murdered in the Caldwell Fields area outside of Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. This crime took place in August 26th of 2009, and 10 years on, we still have no answers. Let's talk a little bit about Virginia Tech as a place. Virginia Tech is a very large college with more than 33,400 students, 26,600 undergrads, and 6,780 graduate students. 
in a town, Blacksburg, Virginia, with a population of 46,000. So when you think of a college town, Blacksburg, Virginia sounds like it's completely swamped with students come each late August. Absolutely. When the school empties out, it's just the folks in Blacksburg. But when it comes back and kids arrive back again in August, the place really gets hopping. Heidi and David were starting their sophomore year at Virginia Tech in 2009. Heidi was a biochem major who was planning on switching to pre-med. And David was an industrial systems engineering major. Two very smart kids. Interestingly, uh, Virginia Tech has a uh, history of um, sad and violent incidents that we'll get into in a future podcast. But these two students seemed like very promising young people, high school sweethearts, both attending college in a very challenging academic environment, but a place where they were really thriving. They had known each other for quite a bit of time and had dated for quite a bit of time before attending Virginia Tech together. And they also attended Heritage Baptist Church together. Uh, They actually both played guitar, and it was guitar that they were going out to practice when they decided to leave Heidi's apartment on the night of August 26th to go to Caldwell Fields and practice in a beautiful environment. Now, there's something about that evening, though, that, uh, Kristen, they were supposed to be on some sort of special date, and I don't think it's ever really come out exactly what was supposed to be special about that evening. No, that, that hasn't been reported other than the fact that, uh, you know, it was a beautiful evening by all accounts. Southwest Virginia is a beautiful place. Having been to college there, I can attest to that personally. And... Uh, David had said that he wanted to play a new song for Heidi. And the two of them decided that the best place to do that was Caldwell Fields. And how far is Caldwell Fields from the campus? Uh, It's anywhere from 12 to 15 miles from campus. So fairly nice place to get away from the hustle and bustle and um, craziness of people moving back into college. Mm Mm-hmm. So a 20 or 25 minute drive, you would say? Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Uh, Caldwell Fields is part of the Jefferson National Forest. Um, So it is a common recreation area for college kids and for locals. Plenty of places nearby to hike. And uh, there's even a public shooting range nearby, the significance of which we will come back to a little bit later. Mm Mm-hmm. And people seem to go back and forth between referring to these murders as the Caldwell Fields murders and uh, the Childs Metzler or Heidi Childs David Metzler case. Correct. So for our listeners, you'll probably hear both of those denotations throughout the next. So what else do we know about about that evening, um, the evening in question? We do know that they left Heidi's apartment around 8 o'clock on that particular evening, and they took uh, David's Toyota, his 1992 Toyota, uh, out to the Caldwell Fields area. Uh, And it was in that car that they ultimately met their demise. We don't know what precisely happened to them out there on that evening. Uh, Details that have been released about the crime have been few, 
but we do know that sometime between 8.25 and 10 that night, Heidi and David were brutally murdered by an assailant with a thirty caliber hunting rifle. So the Virginia State Police, who are the lead agency here, have narrowed the timeline to a fairly tight hour and a half or so. So we took 8.25 p.m. to be a starting time of about 8 from campus or, or their apartment, uh, apartments, cl- plural, um, and then heading out to Caldwell Fields. Do we know how we've determined that the shooting took place before 10 p.m.? I haven't run across that in any of the um, any of the reports that I have seen, but they have narrowed it to that window pretty significantly. So I'm curious as to how they came to that uh, how they came to that particular conclusion. So the bodies are not found until the following morning at eight o'clock, correct? Correct. They were found at eight o'clock the next morning by a man who was walking his dog through the Caldwell Fields area. And what did he find when he got there? Well, David was inside the car. Heidi was on the outside. Maybe she saw their assailant and tried to escape out of the car. Um, The police did not release a lot of information about the positioning of the bodies, their injuries, or really anything. Even the number of shots fired has never been released. No, not even the number of shots fired. Um, A quote from one of the articles that I read in preparation for the episode has characterized the murders as brutal and ugly, but we do not know anything beyond that. And a thirty odd six is a hunting rifle, a high-powered weapon, and it sounds like this was probably fired at close range. I would imagine so, yeah. And I guess it's more than possible that Heidi escaped the car and began to run but didn't didn't make it far. That seems like a pretty reasonable supposition to me. Uh, Heidi's purse was missing from her car. Uh, David's car, I'm sorry. But that is a detail, strangely, that was not released until 2012, three years after the murders. Now, as someone who's been through this over 30 years, I find the holdback of the details of what was missing from the car to be unusual. Um, uh, let me explain. Uh, law enforcement will, will hold back details um, from a crime scene. And the reason they do that is if a tip comes forward and they can use one of those holdbacks as a way of questioning whether or not this tip is, is valid. So in other words, let's say someone said they observed um, Heidi and David's murder. They might ask that person questions, or if a suspect is identified, they ultimately, in questioning that suspect or group of suspects, will be asking him or her questions that only the killer would know because the only people that were there ostensibly are Heidi and David and the perpetrator and you know any potential witnesses, but only someone who was there and live to tell the tale, would be able to provide these details. I I was always struck by the fact that the Virginia State Police chose to hold back a a whole list of items that were missing uh, for three years. 
And let's go through the list and then I'll, I'll get into why I think this is a strategic error. Excellent. So among the items that were missing from the car was Heidi's purse, which had a silver Motorola Razor phone. This is 2009, remember? A silver Sony Cybershot camera, her credit card, and her Virginia Tech student ID card, the Hoagie Passport, as it was called, and a Virginia Tech lanyard. Now, I remember seeing the press conference in 2012, and they went into a great deal of detail with photographs of what the Sony camera would have looked like, what the Motorola Razor phone looked like. Of course, a lot of us knew that phone because it was very popular at the time. But this just struck me as so odd because this is a situation where I think law enforcement has a strong tendency to not trust the public. And they may have their reasons for that, but I find this often to be a mistake in other words, I, you know, the holdbacks that I referenced, I get the fact that you need those. But in this example, in 2012, three years after the murders, then the Virginia State Police and the other agencies decide to release, be on the lookout for these five or so items. And what a challenge for the public to remember back three years prior. Was there anybody who was, you know, who? showing up with a phone or a, a digital camera that you know they didn't previously have. It seems like such a missed opportunity, and that's why I'm frustrated to have a three-year gap between 2009 and 2012. Absolutely. I mean, it would be very, very difficult to remember from even a month previous, much less three years previous. Oh, yeah, I remember somebody who had a brand-new Motorola silver razor phone. They don't normally have that. I wonder if that could mean anything. Um, Certainly that is very, very odd that they would choose to hold that back for three years. Um, In the press conference um, in 2012, when this list of items was released, one other piece of information was released as well. And that was that there was DNA evidence, I'm quoting here, DNA evidence in the form of fingerprints was found at the scene. Now, that could be a variety of things. That could be uh, fingerprints on the vehicle, uh, David's Toyota. Um, It's also possible to extract um, fingerprints and sometimes touch DNA from bullets, either from cartridges which may be ejected from certain types of of weapons. And now, even from uh, bullets that have entered uh, a body or gone through a a body in this example, forgive me if I sound like I'm being too graphic, Um, but there are techniques available now to extract DNA from a variety of of sources, uh, our friend Jared Bradley, who runs the company called MVAC, has extracted uh, with great success DNA from a variety of different um, uh, sources where, where, where this was not available um, before, including things like uh, fabric, um, touch DNA, um, uh, rocks, um, 
murder weapons uh, and bullets, both cartridges and um, uh, and bullet fragments. Um, and this is this may be one of the potential areas for uh, movement in this case. And I would imagine that at least part of the impetus for um, the announcement of reinvestigating the case in 2019, which we'll get to in just a little bit, would be because we do have such advanced um, testing methods for DNA, as you mentioned, the MVAC. Um, I would imagine that's at least part of what they're hoping to do now in 2019 as we're headed into 2020. Uh, I'm sure that they are hoping to try to retest that DNA. Yeah, this is something we've seen in the Colonial Parkway murders and in other cases where the advances in, in DNA technology and DNA extraction technology in the last 10 years, and especially in the last five, smaller and smaller amounts of DNA are required, and the refinement of DNA testing has gotten better and better, which, of course, we'll get into in discussing this and other cases. Ultimately, though, in 2009, despite the fact fact that there were more than 1,300 leads and a $70,000 reward, there were no inroads made on the case, and so the investigation went essentially cold. And the next press conference made regarding the case was the one that we were just speaking about in 2012 when the DNA evidence was mentioned and the list of items that had been taken from Heidi's purse was also mentioned. After a break of uh, seven years in August 2019, another press conference was called with reference to Heidi and David. Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm piling on with law enforcement, again, as someone who's lived with a case for 30 years, I am completely baffled why... Virginia State Police allowed seven years to elapse between the 2012 conference and the 2019 conference held this past August. In the 2012 conference, which I did watch and read about, it was pretty clear they were trying to put pressure on some individuals who they thought might be involved. And this is where they came out with the DNA. Kristen, as you mentioned, if you're trying to ratchet up pressure on Um, a group of perpetrators, um, potential perpetrators, I should say, why not hold another press conference or release additional information six months or a year later? I I, I get the fact that law enforcement is completely committed to solving the Caldwell Fields murders, but a seven-year gap between press conferences, from my point of view, is unacceptable. And I am completely lost as to whatever momentum they were trying to create in the media in 2012, why there wasn't another press conference held later that year or at, you know, at best a year later to give people some sort of update. Because Quite frankly, people forget the public who are well-meaning and will try to help you. But again, there I think sometimes the law enforcement inherent distrust of the public seems to enter into their decision to remain focused on internal 
steps to move an investigation forward without involving the public. And I, I think that's a mistake. No, I can definitely, I can definitely see that. Uh, you know, and it has been at this point, we're recording this in you know, late December, we're almost into 2020. And we have heard nothing else in the press since that August 2019 announcement that they would be reopening and reinvestigating the case. I would certainly have hoped, again, as you alluded to, that there would have been maybe another press conference or another, um, uh, you know, press, uh, another movement in the press to kind of keep this case open and keep it in the public eye. Um, You were certainly going to need more than just the announcement, hey, we are reinvestigating this case to keep the public focused on what has been happening. Um, This case is 10 years old at this point, and the number of people who were present in Blacksburg during that time period may certainly have declined. It is a college town. Um, Anyone who was in Blacksburg, uh, you know, as a student during that time has certainly moved on. Um, uh, You know, it is a very small group of people, I would imagine now, who were present in the area and even remember the case. So you certainly have to keep your momentum moving forward. Um, yeah, I, you know, 25% of the student population is going to be turning over every single year. Exactly. And these folks are going to be uh, then distributed all over Virginia and all over the country as they pursue their careers and, and their lives. And people forget. And I, I think this is a huge mistake. And I think we see this in this case and any number of other cases, the failure to keep the case in front of the public. And, um, you know, I, I know people will, will be shocked sometimes when we're talking about our case and people will be saying it's been more than 30 years or in this case, um, 10 years now for Childs and Metzler and their families have been waiting an entire decade for answers and that inherent distrust of the public is very, very problematic, I think. You know, and it has been posited by some of the um, experts on this case that I've been talking to in this case, the woman who runs the Caldwell Fields Facebook page, that um, the murder of Heidi Childs and David Metzler may have been overshadowed somewhat by other criminal cases that had happened around them. There was, of course, the Virginia Tech massacre in 2007, and she feels that, uh, you know, maybe Heidi and David's murder was downplayed um, to avoid the idea that Virginia Tech was an unsafe place to be. That's I an, don't it's know. an interesting observation. So that the Virginia Tech massacre was two years prior. It was. It was 2007. And for a lot of people around the country, that might have even been the first time they'd ever even heard of Virginia Tech, despite the fact that it is a large and, and well-known school. Absolutely. But it is in kind of a quiet corner, the southwest corner of Virginia, out in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Absolutely. not a school that necessarily everyone in the country has heard about, although they do have a very strong sports program and great academics. Absolutely. But... It might have been the first time I'd ever heard of Virginia Tech. Um, Certainly, I had not much awareness of it when the 2007 murders took place. Absolutely. And, and, you know, what what a terrible thing 
for a, a massacre of 32 students and teachers, and then two years later to have a really brutal double homicide happen in the same place. I am sure that there was a certain amount of, um, you know, kind of fear from, you know, possibly the investigators and, and uh, you know, media involved. Oh, my God, this just happened. Now, now this is happening again. How terrible. Um, but respectfully... These two things are unrelated. That is true. And no one's trying to run down the school's reputation. Absolutely not. And I think that that Caldwell Fields deserved all the publicity it got, and quite frankly, a lot more. Absolutely. I mean, ironically, um, Heidi Childs is the daughter of Don Childs, who was a longtime uh, helicopter pilot for the Virginia State Police. And if anything... Don Childs and and his family were kind of within the Virginia State Police family. You would think they would throw everything they had at this case, and and yet a decade has elapsed, and we still don't have any kind of resolution. And I know that you personally can speak to the amount of frustration, and I, I know personally that you can speak to the frustration of going so many years without answers when it comes to the death of a loved one. Well, and as I've talked about in interviews before, uh, terrible things happen every single day and every single week. And um, quite frankly, uh, families and supporters of uh, murder victims actually have to fight for attention and resources. It's all about time, attention, and resources. And it uh, it pains me to see uh, these families be put through this where this case is now dragged on for 10 years with no resolution. Let's take a few minutes and talk a little bit more um, about Heidi and David as, as people. Absolutely. Um, you know, Heidi had the family nickname of Smiley because she was a bright, bubbly, cheerful person, even as a child. Her family would call her Smiley because people would come up to them in the grocery store when Heidi was riding in a shopping cart, and they would say, she's so smiley. Um, and that, you know, that says something about what a bright, enthusiastic person she was and how much people wanted to be around her. In every picture that we have seen so far, she has this beautiful, just bright white smile. She looks like she very clearly um, is just enjoying her life. The two of them are both born-again Christians and had been for years, Um, They're both from Lynchburg, Virginia, about two hours away, very involved in their church, uh, both singing in the choir, both singing in the praise and worship Mm -hmm. group, and uh, both uh, pretty accomplished uh, guitarists and and musicians. Precisely. And that's, uh, you really got the impression from the stories from family and friends that these were two young people who knew what they wanted to do with their lives. They were content with where they were. They knew what direction things wanted to go in and and they were set out. They were going to set out and do it. They were going to do what they needed to do to make their lives happy and extraordinary. And, you know, that's very different, I think, from a lot of college freshmen and sophomores who were kind of struggling to figure out where they are. Like they, they knew what they were going to do. Heidi had been about to switch majors, but uh, you know, that was, that was something that was all just part of the plan. She and David were going to uh, um, 
were going to discuss it that evening at Caldwell Fields, and uh, they were going to, you know, continue with their their plan for a happy life together. I know that the um, her parents said that she had called them uh, very excited, and they said she would speak very rapidly when she was excited and had some good news. And Heidi had said she wanted to switch over to pre med. So here's um, uh, a young woman who, by all accounts, is is brilliant and positive and full of life and um, has now made a decision that she's going to go down the road towards um, at least planning on becoming a doctor. And apparently that was part of the discussion for that special evening. Yeah, they, um, you know, we're looking to have a, a private conversation away from the hustle and the bustle of, uh, you know, a, a college town, a college apartment complex where people are knocking on your door. And um, so they decided to take David's car and head out to the Caldwell Fields, um, which is, you know, by all accounts, a beautiful, peaceful place, which seems just about perfect for the two of them. But at the same time, um, an indication of their seriousness of purpose um, David wanted to make it an early night because he had homework to do. So even though it was a date night, they were going to go out there, spend a couple of hours. He was still going to plan to get back to his apartment to do more work um, just because, you know, he, he again was someone who was a real hard worker, very positive and determined to move forward in his own career. Absolutely. I mean, these are, are two really spectacular um, bright, positive people, which I think makes the tragedy of their murder all the more profound. And um, as far as we can tell, they're not really engaging in any risky behavior. Exactly. These are what we would call low-risk victims. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they're about the least likely people to be murdered that you could possibly think of. Our friend Jim Clemente, who's an FBI profiler, um, had talked to us about low-risk victims. And we're not attaching any value judgment here. In other words, um, all of us were young people at, at some point. And Speak for we, yourself. <laughs> I was never well, young. <laughs> well, for me, it was a long time ago. But, you know, there are things that I did that, as a young person that I think were not smart, um, I can picture myself hurtling around a, a few corners in my dad's Renault and blowing not one but two tires. <laughs> now remember, there's only one spare. <laughs> you know, while zooming around a junior high school parking lot at a uh, high rate of speed or as high as a little four-cylinder Renault can go. <laughs> wow. But my point is, we're not attaching any value judgment. Oh, no, not at know, all. When we talk about uh, this case and others, they, sometimes there are young people doing young people things, but I don't have a problem with two college students who've been um, together, I think, since high school and are, by all accounts are a pretty serious couple by this point. Um, you know, deciding to go to a, a romantic place to have a conversation and plan their future, that doesn't strike me as, um, you know, intensely risky by any account. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, which does lead to the, the next question of if these two bright, well-adjusted, happy, 
teenagers, young adults, I'm sorry, uh, have shown up at a lovely recreational area. What in the world did they stumble into or what must they have seen for them to end up with 30 caliber bullet holes riddled in their bodies? What happened to them? What potential motive was there in this slaying? I can certainly think of none. Well, you know, these two don't seem like they have an enemy in the world. No one has a bad thing to say about them. I know there is sometimes a tendency to lionize uh, the dead, particularly young people who've died uh, so prematurely. But by all accounts, everything that people have to say about about Heidi and David is incredibly positive. Uh, You can't help but think... Uh, it's possible they were shot the minute they pulled up, perhaps um, at, let's say, 8.30 at night in August. It, you'd probably be getting dark by that point. Oh, certainly, yeah. Um, uh, uh, it's possible they pulled up and interrupted a drug deal or something else going on that they shouldn't have witnessed. And this truly could be uh, wrong place, wrong time. Um, strictly by chance. And the stranger on stranger violence is incredibly difficult um, to solve. You know, most of the time investigators will be looking for relationships, um, work, school, romantic, um, uh, you know, uh, financial conflict, uh, a drug deal gone bad, um, you know, and most places in terms of investigations will start with looking at all of the relationships of the victims to see uh, in the victimology, is there something that was happening in that In August of 2019, a press conference um, was again cause, called, you know, this, this time announcing the reinvestigation this, of the case feels like by a joint task this could force. Be a completely the task force was comprised act, of 10 different law enforcement out, agencies, including the Virginia State Police, so unless the FBI, Montgomery County Sheriff's Department, the U.S. Marshals, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Forest Service, the Virginia Tech Police, and the Blacksburg Police. Bill, why so many law enforcement agencies? I, I'm not quite sure. I think they're trying to show seriousness of purpose in kind of trying to jumpstart um, this case uh, for Heidi Childs and David Metzler at the 10-year mark. Um, I think they're designing this to be inclusive, but, uh, you know, as someone who's lived through these kind of task force operations in the Colonial Parkway murders, this is an exceptionally large number of investigative agencies. The big challenge when you have 10 different agencies is coordination and, you know, how often are they going to meet? Some of it's just the logistics. If you think about any professional environment, how often are we going to talk? Are we going to create a, a mechanism for us to share information, who takes the lead. Remember, we are talking about agencies and, you know, just like in any other uh, business and law enforcement is a business, there's competition, there's egos involved, etc. As near as I can tell, in this case, um, for Charles Metzler, uh, the Virginia State Police seem to take the lead. But this is a lot of law enforcement horsepower Harnessing that um, intelligence and energy is probably going to be a challenge. I would imagine so. And although they do have a ton of resources at their disposal, 
I am a little curious as to why there hasn't been another press conference regarding any breaks in the case since August. Well, and if I could make a suggestion as someone who's done marketing and communications and legislative campaigns in my professional life for, gosh, I don't know, a couple of decades, um, that would be one of my recommendations. I think if, if there, um, there's been a significant gap in terms of their outreach to uh, the public via the media, and I think they could probably be using the media more effectively to reach out to the public. Now, they have done two particularly interesting things to move this case forward in the public's eye. And one is that the FBI added $28,000 in reward money to bring the reward total to a staggering $100,000. That is a staggering amount of money. It's a lot of money. It's a a tremendous amount of money for uh, a double homicide of this type. A couple of observations. Um, when you're raising funds for um, a reward like this, you will often end up with an odd number because different community organizations in, it, in, in an effort to show support and to help will um, hold fundraisers. And, you know, somehow they ended up at $72,000. And that's obviously one of those situations where it's a round number, but it's a... Um, it's not $72,058.12. Someone at the FBI made the decision, this is your federal tax dollars at work here, folks, to round up to $100,000. They're trying to to create an impression and um, to break through a certain amount of clutter. I mean, $100,000 is a lot of money in my world. And I think for someone in Virginia that might have knowledge of this case, um, this is why they they do this. But I think this is part of a media splash. Um, the truth is, if someone comes up with a tip or information leading to, it's always about the leading to the arrest and conviction, um, you know, they do the $100,000 thing as a way of garnering attention. And hopefully, maybe there's someone out there or maybe several someones who might have more knowledge about this case and perhaps $100,000 is enough to push them over the edge. Absolutely. And if you do have any information about the murders of Heidi Childs and David Metzler, you can send that information to the police and you can do it in a couple of ways. Uh, There has been a website set up for this case specifically by the Virginia State Police. And if you have information regarding the murders of Heidi Childs and David Metzler, you can go to www.vspunsolved.com or you can call the tip line at 540-375-9589. One observation about the VSP Unsolved com website. I was very intrigued with this um, decision. Um, obviously, the vspunsolved.com web address can be used for lots of other cases. My first question when I looked at it was, are they seeking information in other unsolved cases? Because obviously the name is applicable to any case that the Virginia State Police are currently investigating. Interestingly, they're not. Right now, the only case that's featured on this website is Childs Metzler. 
I am a little curious as to why that is as well. Um, I don't know if prior to this, the Virginia State Police have advertised for tips in this way before. Maybe this is a new marketing strategy, not marketing strategy. Maybe this is a new strategy for them. Um, But certainly it was very interesting to take a look at that website and learn uh, that it is solely for, at this point, Heidi and David's murder. Now, Virginia State Police have used similar techniques, uh, for instance, in the Route 29 stalker case, which we'll be talking about in a future episode. Um, The Alicia Showalter Reynolds murder as part of the Route 29 stalker case. The state police did use, you know, similar outreach, but I, I find this very striking. I think this is a good thing. Um, And uh, I'd love to see the Virginia state police use this kind of technique more often, not less, because the truth is, this social media environment that we live in, there's so much opportunity to get the word out to people directly. Um, obviously, newspapers, the radio, television, traditional media, I'm putting air quotes around that, uh, is incredibly important. But using social media like this and giving people an opportunity to provide information, interestingly, too, this is the first time I remember the Virginia State Police being very explicit that they would accept tips from anonymous individuals. I'm sure they've done it before, but they're really emphasizing that. And they've had, they have said at the August 2019 press conference that they think there are people who have information about this case. 10 years has gone by, relationships change, um, people move, people die. Um, so the dynamic between individuals that might have some information could be very different in here we are in 2020 just about um than than it was 10 years ago so there may be an opportunity here and of course we have a lot of experience too using social media to help push our case forward the two of us are co-mods on the colonial parkway murders facebook page there you are using that young people lingo what's a mod (laughs) moderator, <laughs> as you well know. Uh, and I like to think of myself as a co-moderator, but not a mod. <laughs> uh, you know, and we have had, I think, quite a bit of success in the time that our Facebook page has been up um, in getting tips from people. And we do want to take the opportunity to thank everybody who has uh, followed our page, liked the page, and taken the time to give us information that they feel, uh, you know, may help us um, as we continue down. It will now be year 34 for the start of the Colonial Parkway murders case here fairly soon. And, you know, we do really uh, embrace the opportunity to get the word out via social media about this case. Well, and in, in the Child's Metzler example, um, this, there's... They're putting $100,000 on the table, and I would urge anyone who has any information, um, even if they've given it to the police before, they, they are redoubling their efforts, and I have to praise them for this. And um, the Childs and Metzler families were there at the press conference and talked about how they've dealt with the loss, and I have a lot of admiration um, for them. I've not had any personal contact with these families. I, I have often spoken to other uh, murder victims families in, in a, as a way of showing support. But um, 
I think the families have handled this uh, loss with a great deal of grace. And, you know, anyone that has any information that could be valuable, I think, you know, now's the time. And I think the um, task force will be aggressive about their follow-up and because they really are trying to put this case over the finish line. Uh, and there are two Facebook groups that you can join if you are interested in the Caldwell Fields case. Those are the Caldwell Fields Murders and the Heidi Childs and David Metzler Memorial Group, both of which are on Facebook. And you know, I would encourage anyone who is interested in this case to follow those pages and to engage in dialogue whenever possible because it is so important to continue talking about these cases so that these families can have some resolution, I think is the best word. I know closure is not the one that tends to work well, um, but some resolution to this and ultimately see justice done for Heidi and David. Yeah, it's funny. I I think one of the challenges, it's a small one, but um, I, for me personally, probably because I'm not from Virginia and didn't grow up near Blacksburg, the Caldwell Fields name is not as meaningful to me on a personal level as Heidi Childs and David Metzler um, are because it may be because I'm the brother of a murder victim. Um, now, it's funny, you know, we call the Colonial Parkway murders the Colonial Parkway murders, and eight young people were apparently murdered as part of that. Um, obviously, we couldn't give it, you know, eight young people's yeah. last names. Um but I think um, we have a, a little bit of a branding challenge here. Um, by you know, they, it, the case goes by two names. You know, that ship has sailed, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So you know, they, we've got two Facebook pages, both of uh, whom are um, you know created with the best of intentions, and we urge you to consider following both pages and contributing if you can. Um, is one more active than the other? Uh, the Caldwell Fields murder group does seem to be a little bit more active. Um, both, though, have been up since uh, since the murders in, in 2009. And, again, I think that that is something that they should be praised for, the initiative that was taken to put up this Facebook page immediately after the murders to get the public involved. Um, I, I, you know, they are certainly to be praised for that. Um, in attempting to immediately engage a social media strategy. Um, so I think it would be, it would certainly be difficult um, to decide to um, take on that challenge in the middle of, of you know, dealing with the, the grief and the shock and the horror that such a, a truly staggeringly awful crime would engender in a community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so certainly uh, hats off to, um, Lisa Lucas Gardner, who uh, took it upon herself to create the Facebook pages. Um, she is to be commended for continuing to keep this case uh, in the public eye in the way that she has um, with these these active Facebook groups. I hope nobody's offended by my use of the word branding. Um, the truth is, terrible things happen every single day. And on some level, families... And friends of murder victims, particularly as cases go unsolved, <clears throat> excuse me, in the long run, do have to push for media coverage. And one of the great things that you can do now 
which, you know, we didn't have this opportunity 30 years ago, was, you know, using social media. And so it is helpful to get the word out. And it is very helpful for people to understand, particularly those that want to provide some sort of assistance, to understand what case it is that we're talking about. And you really have to keep repeating these um, pleas for information over and over and over again. I don't use branding in a, in a, in a flip manner. You know, we're not, we're not selling, you know, soda or, or uh, lawn care products here, but you do have to fight for time, attention and resources, as I, I like to say, and social media does afford an opportunity for families and friends of murder victims to get the word out to the public at large, who I think do want to help if they can understand what it is you're talking about and how they can assist. This wraps it up for our first episode of Mind Over Murder. If you have any information related to the murders of Heidi Childs and David Metzler, please follow the link in our show notes. Sources that we used for this episode include reports from the Roanoke Times, the Collegiate Times, WDBJ7, and the Associated Press, Oxygen Crime News, Dateline NBC, Crime Online, the Radford News Journal, among others. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next time on Mind Over Murder. Next week, we'll be joined by Lisa Lucas Gardner, who has done a great deal of work in the Child's Metzler case in Caldwell Fields. And finally, we are a new podcast. We hope you'll consider subscribing to Mind Over Murder and give us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to Mind Over Murder. Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions. Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook. And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56. Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder.